0: The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston.
1: Gracious God. By the power of your Spirit, open our hearts, open our minds, so that as your scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear with joy what it is that you are saying to us this day. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple of times this morning, International Women's Day has been mentioned and I was reminded this past week by Debbie Mullins uh, that one of the women who exists very large in this country's consciousness is Rosie the Riveter and you may have read that the real life Rosalind Walter who Rosie the Riveter was based on died this past week. What you may not have caught was that Rosie the Riveter was married right here in this sanctuary in 1942. So you're in a place that has nice resonance uh, on this International Women's Day. Today is also the second Sunday in the season of Lent. And this Lent in worship, we are exploring a question that has gained a lot of traction in the contemporary world. What does it mean to live an authentic life? Our interest in authenticity, I think, makes sense. Those of us living in this so-called age of information face a deep irony. We swim in an ocean of unreliable data. Too many stories out there have been fabricated Too many facts have turned out to be fake. Too many people have played us for fools. We're tired of counterfeits. We hunger for the real and the true. We crave authentic experiences. We want authentic relationships. We yearn to be authentic people. How do we get there? Last week we started To explore the path to authenticity, the first step, we said, in becoming an authentic person requires that we answer the question, who am I? And if you weren't here last Sunday, you can find that sermon, Do You Need a Sorting Hat, on the website. This week, we're gonna embark on the second stage of our journey. We're going to wrestle with the question, where am I headed? What is the place out there on the horizon that I'm trying to reach. Where is home? As we ponder our thoughts of home, let us listen together for God's word as it echoes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, beginning with the 16th verse. When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me Because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. (laughs) And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we've heard you did at Capernaum. And Jesus said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown.'" But the truth is there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months and there was severe famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove Jesus out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of God for you the people of God. Thanks be to God. So where for you is home? Is home where you were born? Is it where your parents still live? Or is home where you pick up your mail? Is home wherever your favorite chair sits and a and a few precious favorite photos hang on the wall. Perhaps home for you depends on geography. Is home a place where you understand the rhythms of life and and can pick up on the social cues? Is, is, Is home where the barbecue makes your mouth water? Vinegar or tomato based? Mustard? or soy sauce? Is home a retreat? Is it a refuge, a hidey hole away from the craziness of life? Or is home a gathering space, a place full of chaotic conversations with family and friends and even a few strangers? Is home for you a dream waiting to be fulfilled? Or is home a memory, a place lost in time? Is home something best left behind, a place you're still running away from? Or is home something you yearn for with all your heart? Where's home? It's, it's such a small word, home, so common, we toss it around easily, casually, it's time to go home. And yet the roots of this unfussy term wrap around our hearts. To speak about home is to evoke the big emotions, nostalgia and joy, sadness and loss, betrayal and anger. Where's home? Our most important stories begin with this question, this journey. In Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, the king of Ithaca, Odysseus, wants to return home. After fighting the Trojan War, Odysseus hops in a boat, intending to make the short trip from modern-day Turkey across the Aegean Sea back to his Greek island. It takes the king 10 years and numerous perilous adventures before he stands again on the shores of Ithaca. And, And when he finally arrives there, Odysseus is a changed man. And Ithaca is a changed place. Suitors are lining up to woo his wife, Penelope. They're vying to sit on the king's abandoned throne. The Odyssey is is a wild story. You, You read it at some point back in high school, college. It's a poem full of monsters and magic and brushes with death. But ultimately, ultimately, it's a poem that focuses on a very basic question. Where's home? How can I get there? Homer's question sticks with us in life. It it grows within us. Where's home means one thing for a child as she navigates the world on her own for the very first time. It, It means something very different to an adult wondering where his life is headed. Steve Winwood's song, Can't Find My Way Home, first performed in 1969 with Eric Clapton on lead guitar, is one of those rock songs that's been covered by everybody. Bonnie Raitt, Joe Cocker, Styx, Tom Petty, Allison Krauss. It deserves, I think, all this love. Why? Well, in addition to this fabulous bluesy melody, Winwood's chorus pictures someone Someone who's had a few too many glasses of something. Someone who's exhausted by a sad, almost childlike predicament, a predicament that we recognize. But I'm near the end and I just ain't got the time and I'm wasted and I can't find my way home. Why can't this poor soul find his way home? Why is home so elusive? Early in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus (laughs) travels through the countryside of Galilee, going from village to village with his disciples. In today's passage, he arrives in Nazareth, the town where he grew up, sweeping the floor in his father's carpentry shop, hauling water from the village well for his mama, eating the local mustard sauce barbecue Jesus is home So of course when the Sabbath rolls around Jesus along with the rest of the town walks to the local synagogue only this time instead of sitting and listening he stands up and reads from the scroll of Isaiah Jesus reads from the good book and then and then he starts to preach The people of Nazareth elbow each other. They like what they're hearing. Isn't this Joseph's son? Look at him, so cute, all grown up and speaking about the favor of the Lord. Luke tells us that all, all were amazed at the gracious words coming from Christ's mouth. Nothing like a little home cooking. Everything was going great, except... Except for one thing. Jesus kept on preaching. God, Jesus continues, God has favor for people. God cares about people like the widow at Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. And, and at this, at this, the congregation in Nazareth, those who'd been loving on Jesus just a few moments ago, fly into a rage. Why? It's kind of bizarre, right? Their fury here is actually kindled by a couple of obscure characters from the Bible. What's so provocative about these two? The answer is stunningly simple. The widow at Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian were both foreigners, they were outsiders. In fact, Naaman was a foreigner and an enemy. He commanded an enemy army, the Syrian army. And Jesus says to the congregation, the good news of Isaiah, the promise of God's healing and wholeness and hope is for you, but it's also for those who are not from this place, those you despise. That's all it took. And the once ecstatic congregation turned into an angry mob. Stay out of politics, they yell at Jesus. Nazareth isn't home for you, not anymore. Have you ever returned to a place that once nurtured you? A place where the the streets are familiar and the light in the evening tugs at your heartstrings only to discover this is no longer my home. I no longer fit here. Maybe Thomas Wolfe was right. You can't go home again. Maybe we're on a quest, an odyssey, searching for a place that does not exist. This is the possibility entertained by French existentialist thinker, Albert Camus. Camus claimed that humans are forever searching for something, some place, some state of mind that will make the world less unsettling, less scary, less absurd. In this, Camus argues, we are like Sisyphus. You remember Sisyphus. He was also back there in some high school course. Sisyphus was that mythological fellow punished by Zeus, for trying to cheat death. Sisyphus was sentenced by the gods to roll a heavy stone up a steep hill only to have the stone, as he neared the top of the hill, escape his grasp and roll back, all the way back down to the bottom of the hill. Every time for all eternity, Whenever Sisyphus got near his goal, the stone would slip away. The poor fellow would trudge back down the hill and start over again. This, Camus argued, is us. We are Sisyphus. We keep rolling our stone up the hill, hoping that we'll get closer to our goal, only to discover that we never get there. We're never quite happy, never fully satisfied. We never have enough. Our goals elude us. The ends that we seek, the homes that we're trying to create, the life we want to live is theirs. It's at the top of the hill an unreachable place, no matter how hard we try. The best we can do, Camus concludes, the best we can do is just face the fact that life is absurd. Is he right? Is life an absurd, repetitive, futile quest to make it to the top of the hill? Or maybe, maybe... Homer, the poet, is right. After battling a few monsters, you might make it home, but when you get there, you discover a place that isn't quite what you remembered, a place that isn't home at all. Is home attainable? Even Jesus has his doubts. Later in the good book, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter nine, our Lord remarks, foxes have holes, And birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So where's home? I want to recommend a movie for you. If we all get quarantined, (laughs) you put this on your list. It's a documentary called Signs of Humanity. Write it down. Signs of Humanity. You'll thank me later. It's available on Amazon Prime. The film centers on the work and passion of Dallas-based artist, Willie Baronet. For 27 years, Willie Baronet has been buying cardboard signs from homeless people. Baronet says that he bought his first sign because he felt guilty walking past panhandlers. He grew tired of his response, tired of avoiding eye contact and feeling awkward in that moment. And so, Baronet decided to engage. One day, in Dallas, he pulled up to an intersection, rolled down the window of his car, and said, excuse me, sir, I'd like to buy your sign. The man responded, what? Baronet continued, your cardboard sign, it's good looking. I'd like to use it for an art project. Would you sell it to me for 10 bucks? Okay, said the man, somewhat amused. Over the last 17 years, Baronet has purchased over 2,000 signs. Sometimes Baronet has bargained with the sign holder. What do you want for that sign? Five dollars? I don't know, Baronet would reply. I bet it took some time to create that. How about 10? Okay. (laughs) Baronet has cobbled together hundreds of these signs in an exhibit that's toured the country. It's been here in New York at NYU and at other galleries. A snippet of the exhibit adorns the front of your bulletin cover today. Some of the signs that you see here are lighthearted dreaming of a cheeseburger. Some make specific requests, need job, also socks, razors, and boxers. Some are plaintiff, fighting liver cancer. My wife and I are in a wet tent. Most of these signs were collected on a trip that Baronet took from Seattle, Washington to New York A few years ago, this trip is the subject of the movie I recommended to you. You wrote it down, Signs of Humanity. In this film, we follow Baronet from coast to coast as he buys these signs, piles and piles of them. Along the way, Baronet also asks people, both homeless people and non-homeless folk, the same question, our question for this morning. What does home mean to you? Now those answering typically speak about architecture and and creature comforts. Home is a roof over my head. Home is where I lay down to sleep. Home's a place where I can take a shower, a place where I can shave and bathe. It's eye-opening, I think, to be reminded of this basic function, home as a place to get cleaned up. Downstairs here, this church has a locker room attached to our homeless shelter it's an essential part of making this house a home. In the movie though, people's answers to to Baronet's question start to go beyond roofs and, and, and showers and walls. One person replied home means safety. Another said home is sanctuary. One person answered home is where I go to cry. A young woman remarked, home is having a nice warm comforter around you when it's cold out. Another remarked, home is where I'm with the ones I love and the ones who love me are there too. One fellow responded, I don't know, home. Home, I guess, is a place where you can be happy. I've had a roof, but not been happy. Home is where you can be happy. Reflecting on these answers, baronet comments, I realized as I was making this this film something, I I realized we, we all want a place to wash our faces. We all want a place to lay our heads, but we're all searching too. We're all yearning for a home a place where we can be safe and loved. And this search never ends. We're all, in a way, homeless. Now, on one level, the statement, we're all homeless, might seem like a poetic bromide, a, a slogan crafted to ease the conscience of those who have homes. In the end, we're, we're just like the have-nots. Sure, we can crawl in a cozy bed tonight while others will pull a wet tarp over their heads, but we're all the same. Trust me, Baronet does not want to diminish the very real hardship that goes with being homeless. He wants to educate us about that. But he also wants to connect us. Why? Because the homeless know something, recognize something that the rest of us may have forgotten there is deep inside of us a longing that cannot be satisfied by four walls and a roof. There is a hole in our hearts that cannot, that will not be filled no matter how many times we roll that stone up the hill. St. Augustine, the fourth century bishop, who lived in North Africa, led a wild life. He was no coddled believer. Augustine spent a good bit of his early life in the gutter. As a young man, he traveled around his part of the ancient world looking for pleasure, and he found it. He found it in violence, in attending gladiatorial contests, and he found it in sex. But these things did not satisfy the longing in his heart. So Augustine went to school, and he pursued academic success and fame, and he found both. Still, his soul ached. Will nothing, Augustine wondered, will nothing quench my thirst? Eventually, the bishop found an answer. He expressed it in a prayer, and that prayer goes like this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord And our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. Our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. That is faith's answer to today's question. Where's home? God is home. This response runs through our tradition like a unifying thread. Near the end of his life, the prophet Moses is traveling through the wilderness with people who recently escaped from slavery. As they move through the desert, the people ask their leader, where's home? Where's this promised land? Responding, Moses assures them. He says, the eternal God, the eternal God is your dwelling place. Near the end of his life, Jesus is speaking with the disciples and they're growing worried, worried about him, worried about their own faith. Do not be anxious, Jesus assures them. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Where's home? God, says theologian James K.A. Smith, God is the country we are searching for. I want to describe an experience that reminds me of this search, and then I'll be done. I like presiding at weddings. I love the premarital counseling sessions that happen long before the ceremony, I enjoy the excitement of the day, I love watching friends out there lean into each other, blessing the happy couple with their radiant smiles. I can look around this congregation and see a number of people that I'm going to, that well, that I'm going to marry and who I have married. I strive to make the weddings here at Fifth Avenue Church welcoming because I think I get it. I realize that every wedding in this city has guests in attendance who belong to other faiths and people who have no faith at all. And I want everyone to feel legitimately welcome. I treasure New York's wonderful mix. But at the same time, one of the things I most love about weddings at this church is the simple fact that the couple has decided to stir a little old-fashioned faith into the mix. They've looked at their menu of options and they've chosen to make their promises in a holy place to surround themselves with friends and to stand before God. Now that might all seem obvious. Duh, it's a church wedding. Of course, they want God involved. Tell us something we don't know, preacher. Let me try. Over the last few years, I've been surprised at the growing number of people who come up to me after a wedding and say, That was such a beautiful service. I haven't been to a wedding like that in a long time. It did my heart good. People keep telling me that they love the weddings that we do here at Fifth Avenue Church, and I'm surprised at this because in my 12 years here, the wedding service that we do hasn't changed much, and yet the number of people who are making positive comments about the service is on the rise. Why? Well, if I were to toss people's comments to me into a sort of centrifuge and spin them around for a bit, the essence of their responses, I think, would sound something like this. I've been to a lot of weddings lately, Preacher, and I've gotta say, more than a few of them have seemed Sort of silly. Some have been downright confusing. The last one I went to was led by a friend of the groom who got her certificate online. She told a few jokes. It was okay, I guess. But the whole thing felt sort of fluffy or, or, or sly, maybe. More of a wink at commitment than an embrace of serious promises. I don't know. Something felt missing. What? What was missing? Was it a solemn pastor? Was it an organ belting out Mendelssohn's march? Was it words that had been spoken over and over by generations of people in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health? None of those things are essential to getting hitched, not, not really, but all of those things, the music, the pastor, the prayers, all of those elements at their best point beyond themselves, beyond the moment. What was missing in those other weddings? (laughs) In this city that's so doggone cynical, in this city where, where people will tell you to your face that having faith means you're either mean-spirited or crazy or probably both in this city that turns human hunger for success into a take-no-prisoners battle, the thing that's been missing in these sly winks of weddings and other meaningful moments, the thing that's been missing is God. (laughs) He knew I was going to say that. But here's the thing. I'm actually not the one making this point. It only sounds like me talking right now. The ones who are giving voice to this longing are all the people who are coming up to Ryan and me graciously after the service and saying, that ceremony spoke to my heart. It makes me both sad and happy to hear that comment. Sad because too many people for far too long have been chewing on spiritual garbage stuff that has no chance of connecting them with the holy and the true. And it makes me happy because, well, I suspect that these comments might be a sign that we're getting to the end of our sojourn in a cultural, spiritual desert. Maybe in this inauthentic age, we are finally growing tired of the idea that the self, the narcissistic, self-aggrandizing self, the angry self, the needy self, the messed up manipulative self ought to be the final arbiter of the right and the good. Maybe we're starting to grasp the truth of Augustine's words. The authentic life cannot be reached by feeding the ego's ravenous appetite We can roll stones up that hill forever. We will never get to our goal. We will never be satisfied. We'll attend wedding after wedding, and we'll always leave scratching our heads. Something's missing. And ironically, that is where the authentic life begins. It starts with the recognition something's missing. I feel lost. Out of balance. My heart is so restless. Authenticity starts with the admission that we are all homeless. We are all searching for a place of comfort and love. We're looking for sanctuary and we're not there yet. Aha, say the ancients says Moses, says Jesus. Ah, this is good. This, this ache in your chest, it means something. Listen to it. It isn't a distraction or indigestion. It's a summons. It's, it's a clanging dinner bell inviting you to leave convoluted paths and dead-end goals. It is the ground of all being calling you home. Hear now this benediction. O oh, may your home be my abode and all my work be praise. There would I find a settled rest while others go and come, no more a stranger or a guest, but like a child at home. Go from this place trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and clinging to one another in the power and solidarity of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.